quite varied, I'm sure. What, what do you want? I mean, what if, what if God said, what do you want? I, I'm, I'm going to give it to you. What do you want? Well, uh, most of us have a tendency to ask for things that really don't constitute a need. So the most important question is, what do we need? That's a lot more important than what we want, because a lot of times what we want is not what we need at all. But to narrow it down, or maybe however you're looking at it, to expand the question, uh, what do we need as a church? What, uh, what do we need most at this moment as a church? I don't hesitate whenever, whenever I say that I believe with all my heart based on experience, observation, and so on and so forth, I believe we need a revival. And uh, I don't say that to just single out this church because I believe the same thing's true of every church probably in America needs a revival. If they don't today, they will tomorrow. That's just the way revival works. Somebody said to Billy Sunday many years ago, back about 1900, I think it was, and and uh, Billy was preaching one revival after another, and somebody told him, well, that's just not worth your time, not worth the effort, because revivals don't last. And he said, well, uh, neither do, does a bath last, but it does a person good to get one once in a while. You know, it doesn't last forever. You don't, a revival's not like salvation, a once-for-all experience. And... Uh, I understand I'm not talking about revival meetings. The very mention of revival is something dear to my heart because of the fact that especially in the first 20 years of my going on 56 years of preaching, I preached hundreds of revivals during that time and uh, was on the road either in revival meetings or conferences, uh, uh, probably more than I should have been as I look back on it. I preached revivals and, and brush arbor meetings and uh, tent revivals. And uh, uh, believe it or not, they still do that. Some places in Kentucky have no tent revival. And uh, it's not as glamorous as people think preaching outside in the summertime and the bugs flying all around your head and you swallow something, you got to keep preaching. But... But there's just something special about those revival meetings and the blessing that they've been. But, but I'm not talking about a revival meeting because, you, listen, you can bring in the most notable, distinguished preacher in all of the country. You can bring in the finest singers that are, that are known to man, and everything can go without a glitch. I mean, it can just be perfect, wonderful time. Everybody, you know, everybody shouting and having a wonderful time. You can have all of that and still not have revival. And, and a lot of times we think, you know, we have a revival meeting and we think or we assume that we've had a revival and we're miles away from a revival. The problem is a lot of folks can't distinguish between what they want and what they need. They can't really tell the difference because they figure if they want it, they need it. And mark it down, whenever they get like that, when they want something bad enough, they'll figure out some way to make it appear that they really need that. 
They'll go to extremes. They want everybody to think, I really need this. It's, it's an essential element in my life when, when it's not. Uh, you know, some people, they think they've got to have a Whataburger every week or a steak or whatever. No, you get along just fine without that. We all could. But sometimes we get to thinking, well, I want this so bad, it must be a desire that God's put in my heart. So knowing what you need is important. Listen carefully now. Knowing what you need is very important. Wanting what you need is crucial. Knowing what you need, that's important. Wanting that is crucial. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Most of you already know where, where I'm headed. I actually planned on preaching on this subject uh, probably three or four more weeks down the road. And as soon as the service was over last week and I got home, it just seemed like God, uh, God impressed on my heart that this is something we need to talk about right now, not later on. I made a statement last week, sort of an off-the-cuff statement, not something that I had planned, not something that I had heard. But I said that facts are important, but it's how we feel about the facts that make the difference. You can know the facts. That's one thing. That's good. That's education. But it's how we feel about the facts that really make the difference. Because no amount of, no amount of knowledge is sufficient for us to, to get what we need to become what we ought to be. Notice in verse 14, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Let me give you the picture first. As you know, David wanted to build the temple and God denied him that privilege. But God commended him. He said, it was in your heart. In other words, that's all right. It was in your heart. And a lot of times people want to do things, good things, godly things, and God disallows it because God has a different plan for them. And he told David, no, I'm going to let Solomon build it. And instead of David pouting and just throwing up his hands in despair and saying, well, if you're going to let him do that, well, I just turned it all over to him. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just going to bail out and quit. Instead of doing that, David supplied the materials for his son Solomon to build the temple. So the temple has been built, I think, seven years in the making. Remember, the temple is not just a building of worship. This is a designated house of God. God has always had a house designated for himself. It began with the family. It was extended to the nation of Israel. That was God's house of worship. It started out in the tabernacle, then they built the permanent temple. Today, as you know, it's the church. Unto him be glory in the church. Amen. This is God's house. Yes. Not talking about the building. We're talking about the assembly, God's people. It's God's house, God's dwelling place. It's where he meets with his people, uses his people, and blesses his people. So this is what's happening, and now the, the work has been done, and there's a big dedication service. Solomon prayed, but in verse 14, Solomon has now evidently gone home and, and uh, goes to bed, and, and he says, 
in verse 14, if my people, God speaking to him, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I said a while ago that I believe more than anything else we need a real genuine revival because regardless of how many lessons and classes and services we have related to all of these important issues originally I intended this morning I was going to preach about the matter of discipleship when the Lord when the Lord gave the commission to go into all of the world and preach the gospel and teach and that word teach implies to make disciples and, and that's exactly what we're called to do but I could preach about that for the next six months. But if we don't have a heart to embrace it and to practice it, it's not going to do any good. And we're not going to have a heart for it until there's a revival that takes place within us, a change of our attitude. And as I said a few months ago, too many of us are living on autopilot. And that's dangerous because we get stuck on stunted in our spiritual life. We're right where we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. We've not progressed. We're not doing any more than, uh, than we've ever done. We're just stuck there. And we need to see our need of revival as soon as possible. Uh, I love what Leonard Ravenhill said about revival. He said, as long as we are content to live without revival, we will. As long as we're content living without it, we will. Because there will never be a revival until, first of all, there is a burning desire in our heart for revival. And the only way we're going to get that, I think, is for us to understand that revival is a matter of survival. You know, we think we can get along just fine without it, but that's not the case. I don't know about you, but I believe that God... When 9-11 happened, now I know God didn't pilot the planes. I understand that. I'm not saying God sent them on a mission to bring down the twin tires. But nothing in this world ever happens without God either appointing it or allowing it. He is still in control regardless of what you think or regardless of how it might seem. Because sometimes it appears to us that Boy, God, God's either asleep or he's dead or he just don't care because something needs to be done. And over and over again, we find in this same chapter here, the Lord warning them because God knew this was going to happen. It had happened with Israel all the way back to the book of Judges. You go back there and there was one cycle after another after another throughout that book. And by the way, that book takes up Something like, a, I believe it was a third of all of, when you look at it chronologically, it takes up about a third of all of that time period of the Old Testament. And people don't realize that. It's, it's a big time element there. And it was one cycle after another. That was the history of Israel. And God knew it was going to happen again. And that's why he warned them over and over and over. Look back up in verse number 10. He said, and on thee, or on, on the three and twentieth day of the seventh month, he sent the people away into their tents, glad and merry in their heart for the goodness that 
the Lord had shown unto David and to Solomon and to Israel his people. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord, and in his own house he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I've heard thy prayer, and thy have chosen this place for thyself. Now notice, he says, if I shut up heaven and there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, if I send pestilence among my people. Do you you notice what God's saying there? If if I withhold the rain. You know, we have a lot of things we call natural disasters, and understandably so. But you need to understand, even in a natural disaster, God is allowing it. The Bible says God hath his way in the whirlwind. Whether it's a tornado or a hurricane or whatever else, it would not, could not happen without God allowing it to happen. And notice he speaks about the pestilence there. By the way, that includes all kinds of diseases and viruses and exactly what we've been going through the last two years that would be included in that category. And God said, if I send a pestilence, and I've said over and over again, it's so strange that in other times, look back to 9-11, and we think about the response of our government even. And all of a sudden, nobody was talking about whether they were Democrats or Republicans. All of a sudden, everybody was calling for prayer. We need to turn back to God. The People were holding prayer meetings just for that purpose. And all through this plague, this covid I don't see any of that. There is a strange silence across America, not just with the press, but even in the churches. It seems like nobody wants to mention it unless somebody's got it, you know, and they will pray for so-and-so he has got COVID. And we fail to understand that all of this is allowed to happen because of God. And God allows it to happen, if you read this whole chapter, He allows it to happen when we turn away from Him. And so He says to Solomon, if I do this, and then notice, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. In other words, if God allows it, there's something that we can do about it, if we would. If we would, if we would, I can remember used to several years ago, we had what we call cottage prayer meetings. I can remember back whenever we had prayer meetings every Sunday night, 30 minutes before the service. And uh, nowadays there's just, you can say we're going to meet over here for a prayer meeting in the first two or three weeks, you might get five or six, maybe, maybe get ten. And in just a little while, you watch. And I'm basing this on what I've observed the last 30-some years. After a while, it'll be down to one person or two trying to keep it alive, you see. We just don't get serious about things that are serious. We, we really don't. Not when it involves us making a commitment 
and, and regardless of who you are or how good you think you are, we all need a revival every day, a revival of some sort. We need to repent every day. You see, repentance is not just a one-time thing. Repentance is something that we do over and over and over and over again. Every time we step out of the will of God, every time that we conflict with what God wants for our life, it's time for us to repent of our sins. And it's so strange that a lot of times we wait until disaster hits and then all of a sudden, you know, we get, uh, we get concerned about it, at least for a little while. But as you read through here, there are three things that stands out here that we learn. Righteousness causes God to speak from heaven. And then he shows us here rebellion causes God to shut up heaven. If I shut up the heaven, I withhold the rain, I send the pestilence. But repentance causes God to open up the heavens and pour out his blessings. You know, unless until... You know, we turn to God, we're fighting a losing battle, not just in regards to COVID, not just in regards to the political situation in America today, but in everything, we are suffering defeat. And that's why so many churches are cold and calloused and indifferent because, you know, heaven seems like it's as brass and you can have all the sensational singing, powerful preaching, beautiful buildings, bulging bank accounts, and all of that is never going to solve the problem. The only solution is revival. So I want you to look at three things this morning. Notice the company addressed here. The company being addressed. He says, if my people... You see, revival has to do with God's people. It has nothing to do with lost sinners now, they might benefit from God's people being revived, but the unsaved person is spiritually dead. They don't need revival. They need a resurrection. They're spiritually dead. You can't revive them. They have no heart to do the will of God. They have no, no determination to, to serve Him. If my people... So revival has to do with Christians and churches because regardless of how much we might want the church to be different, the church will never be any better than the members that make it up. If we want our church to be different, then we've got to make some changes in our life and that has to do with making changes in regards to our relationship with God. You can't have a godly church and an ungodly membership. And so many times, you know, we tend to just think, well, you know, we're pretty good. I, I've attended five or six churches around here in the neighborhood, and I, I think it's the best church I've been to. That doesn't mean we're what we ought to be. We might be the best church in the county, the best church in the state, but that does not mean we are what we ought to be. So many have absolutely no dedication to the will of God. They have no love for the Word of God, no commitment to the ways of God, no, no concern about the worship of God. We'll get to that in, in another message sometime. But as you've heard me say, worship is the springboard for Christian service. If we don't worship in spirit and in truth, you mark it down 
what we do when we go out that door is going to be the very minimal amount that, that we want to do. But when we worship in spirit and truth, and if you don't believe that, you go back to the book of Acts. And that's what Acts is all about. It's about the church. It's not about, it's not about the apostles. They're involved in the story, but it's not about them. It is the acts of the Holy Spirit working in the heart and the lives of God's people. So there has to be a concern about the worship of God before we have any concern about the work of God. And if we don't have a heart to, to serve God, if we don't have any remorse over our sin, if we don't have any intention of ever changing and there's a lot of folks like that, and they're usually the very first ones that get offended whenever they're challenged to examine themselves, because they don't want to do that. They don't ever change because they don't examine themselves, because they know deep in their heart what they're going to find. They know of their sins, and they don't want to admit it, not even to themselves. It's there. It's like a ghost that haunts them. They know it's there. They know that they're not living a life that's pleasing to God, and yet they do nothing about it because they don't want to take a good, long, hard look at themselves in the light of God's Word. So what is a revival then? Well, revival is a word that means to awaken. It means to come alive. It's a word that speaks about a renewal or a restoration. It's us getting back to where we ought to be. As someone defined it, he said, it's a new beginning of obedience to God. That's a good way to look at it. A new beginning of obedience to God. And as God's people, we ought to have a daily concern about where we are spiritually, what, the, what our needs are, our genuine needs are. But now, notice the conditions that are attached to this. Revival is possible only for God's people. But notice there are conditions. He says, if my people will, you can sum all this up in the word turn, by the way. If they'll turn, notice, he says, if they'll humble themselves. So the problem starts with what? Pride. That, that is the, at the root of all sin. If we want revival, we have to turn from our pride. Every problem you've got, in some way, pride is associated with it. And we need to see the need because pride destroys. It ruins relationships. It prevents us from seeing our need. It, 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 it corrupts churches. It ruins families. It, it's the most destructive thing on this earth. Remember, it was pride that brought Lucifer down. Oh, he's going to make himself as God. He wanted to take over the controls. He wanted to run the show. He wanted to be God, and he wasn't God because God created him. And it was his pride that brought about his fall. And it always brings about our fall. Pride, the unwillingness to confess, to admit that we are not what we want other people to think we are. Amen. This is where all of that self-love stuff comes in. Your kids are taught that in school. They hear it throughout their lives. They even hear it from some preachers. I know preachers that take the verse over there where it says, the Lord said, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And they said, well, see, that's a command right there that we ought to love ourselves. That's no such thing. That is the assumption. The Lord, when he made that command, is saying, look at how you love yourself. You take care of yourself. You make yourself number one. You put yourself at the front of the line. I want you to love your neighbors like that. There's no command to love ourselves anywhere. And it's that idea that we are to love ourselves that causes us to feel like we are deserving. And that feeling that we're deserving, we deserve better than this. It's just not fair that God or anybody else would withhold things from us and all of a sudden the person is bitter and angry at the whole world because they think they deserve more and bigger and better and they don't get it. The fact is if you got what if you got what you deserved, every one of us would be in a devil's hell. We don't deserve anything. And the only way that we can ever have a revival is for us to get rid of the pride that's in our heart. But then he goes on and he says, and pray. So we have to turn away from our pride. We have to turn away from our prayerlessness. Our prayerlessness. Now, notice he says, and pray. He didn't say, or pray. He didn't say if they'll humble themselves or pray, like you can go at it in a couple different ways. No, these go together. They have to humble themselves and they have to pray. But oh, how little interest there is in genuine heartfelt prayer nowadays. We think about... uh, our conditions, the condition of our country. It's real easy for us to get upset and shift the blame to everybody else, either the Republicans or the Democrats or whoever. Or we blame some religion. It's all their fault. Real easy, boy, to pick at them and about And by the way, what they're doing might be wrong. It might be damaging. But if we're not praying for them, and that includes your president, yeah, it really does. Whether you like him or not, you say, yeah, but he's so way out there. He is, that's all the more reason to pray for him. It's so easy for us to just assume that everything's going to work out all right without any heartfelt prayer. So we have to pray. We have to humble ourselves. Notice he says, and seek my face. That has to do with turning from our pathway. If we're going to seek God's face, that means we've got to do an about turn, 180 degrees, turn around, go the other direction. That word there, seek, means To seek, it means to search after, it means to strive after, it means to beg or to inquire. It carries the idea of pursuing God's pleasure, striving to win His approval, to gain His personal pleasure. You ever thought about bringing pleasure to the heart of God? We ought to dedicate our life to that cause of pleasing God and instead we're mostly interested in just pleasing ourselves. 
Seek my face. That takes time, and it takes total devotion, a wholehearted devotion to seek his face. Remember the church at Ephesus and there in Revelation and the Lord speaking through John about the church there and he commends them for a number of things. My, they, you look at that church and you think, well, they've got it all together. That's the kind of church I want to be a member of. They're just good, hard-working church, doctrinally correct. They don't tolerate any nonsense. They practice church discipline down there. The Lord commended them for all of those things. And then he turns around and says, but I've got something against you. You've left your first love. And I wonder, could it be today that that's happened to you? The first message I preached when I told my story after I got out of the hospital was that it took that to make me realize that I had left my first love. I, I had put more emphasis on what I was doing for the Lord than, than what the Lord had done for me. I was preaching from the same book. I, everything I said was true. But the emphasis in my heart was on that we need to do this, we need to do that, and the emphasis on what I'm doing for the Lord. And we need to stop and think about the fact that without Him, you know, we couldn't do anything. And we have to keep our focus on Him and pursue, pursue His, His will in our life, and that takes total devotion. And then he goes on and tells us we have to turn away from our pollution because he says their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. That's repentance. That's what repentance is all about. And the wicked ways, you say, oh, I don't have any of them. Let me tell you what wicked ways are. The wicked ways, those things that we need to repent of, are anything that's contrary to the will of God. Whatever it is. It can be gossip, it can be slander, it can, anything that God's displeased with is a wicked way. And he says, you've got to change from that. Repentance simply means a change of mind that results in a change of our behavior. It's not just changing what you think about it, it's changing what you do about it. Now notice the, the results, the consequences that are assured. And this ought to get our attention if anything does. If we do those things, four things that he mentions there, we'll humble ourselves. That's where it starts. Humility. humility. If we'll do that, if we'll recognize our need and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, here's, here's what happens. Then, he says, then will I hear from heaven. Then will I, Does that mean that we could be praying about things and God not listening? If we have allowed our life to get out of God's will, if we willingly sin against God, knowingly sin against God, and refuse to do anything about it. God will shut up his ears as it were. And not listen to our prayers. There's so many times people wonder. Well 
I don't understand. I, uh, I've got this need in my life, and I've prayed about it and prayed about it, and I've been praying about it for years, and God's never done anything about it. Well, maybe there's something you need to deal with. Because notice what he says. Whenever we do those four things there, he says, then will I hear from heaven. So whenever revival comes, all of a sudden our prayers are getting answered. Anybody here today need an answer to prayer? Yeah, we all do, don't we? If the prayer isn't for you, it's for somebody you love. Someone that's in dire need of what God alone can supply. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed and then Having prayed, I've asked God, Lord, please, if there's something in my life that's hindering my prayer for this person, please, may the Holy Spirit convict me that I can confess that sin. Because let me tell you, there's a lot of times we're, we're not even aware of our sinful condition. And there's a reason for that, by the way. For one thing, we're not listening to God speak because we're not spending any time in the Bible. You want to hear God's voice? Read your Bible. That's the way God speaks, through the Bible. Amen. Revival brings hearing from heaven. And wh What better thing could you have than that? The assurance that God's saying that you do what I'm telling you to do, and I'll listen to what you have to say. I'll listen to your needs. And we all need that. And then notice it brings holiness from heaven because he says, and we'll forgive their sins. So many times I've said the most miserable people on earth are Christians out of the will of God. And I believe that with all of my heart. There are those out here that, that curse God, those out here that are addicted to drugs and alcohol, those out here that will slit your throat or commit any number of sins and they are not nearly as miserable about it as a child of God that is out of the will of God because the Holy Spirit's not going to let you sin successfully. If you're truly saved when you sin, you knowingly sin, the Spirit of God is going to convict your heart and make you aware of that, that God's not pleased and to think about the great joy that comes whenever we have the assurance that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. You can't find that anywhere else on earth. That's a God thing. And how wonderful it is. You know, if sin makes us miserable, think about how wonderful it is whenever God assures us the record's clear today. For I've washed your sins away. The old account was set long ago. Regardless of who you are, regardless of how, how you've lived or what you've done. And if we was all honest, we'd all have to admit we've done some terrible, horrible things. Awful things. Things that you'd, you'd never want anybody else to know about. Things you've been trying to cover up all of your life. And until you act on that, you're not going to have any peace and joy in your heart. 
Notice it brings healing from heaven also. He says, and I will heal their land. I'll heal their land. Boy, our land is sick today. You see, not only do we experience the awareness of our prayers being answered and the assurance of of our sins being pardoned here, but there's a an effect on the periphery. Everybody around us is suddenly affected. Our whole land is affected when there's a real, true revival. If you've paid much attention going through history and you think about those great awakenings, it's, it's just unbelievable what God did. It, to think that during the Great Awakenings happened up in New England, and what happened there? You're talking about you're talking about cities basically shutting down for prayer meetings at noon, factories closing to have prayer meetings. There was a drastic change across our nation at that time, and it's not because everybody was godly; it was the effect of those that are godly. Remember, we're the the Lord said, "We're the salt of the earth, and we're the light of the world." For us to have a revival is going to affect someone else. And if enough churches in America are revived, it will transform our nation. And you're thinking, boy, we need some changes. We need to get a different president. We got what we deserve. Let me just be blunt about it. We don't deserve anything. Like I've said, if you know, if you deserve a hanging, you shouldn't complain about a beating. And we all, we all are undeserving of God's blessings. The other day I was praying and praying for our country and some specific things. And I don't care who the next president is as long as it's the one God wants. That's what I'm praying for, God's will to be done, whoever it is. God works in different ways. Sometimes what we need, we don't want. Because the Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son he receives. God will give us what we need, what we deserve. And sometimes it hurts. Whenever the Lord gave the warning concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham, his nephew Lot, and his family's there. And he begins to plead with God. Now, look, if anybody, if anybody carried any weight with God, it, it, it ought to be Abraham, right? He's the father of, of the faithful boys. He's right up there with God. And so he began to plead. Lord, if, if I could find a hundred righteous people down there, would, would you spare the city? And I'm sure the wheels are turning, and he's thinking, whoops, I, I'll never be able to do that. He keeps reducing the number from 50, 40, right on down, and finally hits on 10. Just 10. I don't know what the population was there, but believe me, there were thousands of people. Ten righteous souls. And God said, 
make you a deal. You find ten righteous souls, and I will spare the city. All of those guilty, sinful people, God said, I will spare them. I won't destroy them. If you can find ten righteous souls. I don't know how many it would take for God to spare America. But God knows. And there's no hope of a revival out here in these liberal, dead, unscriptural churches. You mark it down. These churches, I don't care how many hallelujahs they got, how much emotions they have in their service or anything else, when they teach you that salvation is not strictly by grace, but rather that it's something you can have today and lose tomorrow, but yet you can work hard and get it back, you're not going to get a revival there because people like that are not even saved if that's what they believe. When you really stop and think about it and think about Christendom across the board, man, there's just, uh, there's just a handful of those who believe in the eternal security of the believer. And that's, that's a serious problem. And I mention that because I want to emphasize the fact of how much responsibility is upon our shoulders. We, we love to talk about the fact we are independent, unaffiliated, premillennial Baptist church. Well, that's all well and good, but not any, of any value at all if we don't have revival. Every, every person here can think of someone you love, a family member that's unsaved. I don't want you to raise your hand. But how long has it been since you made an honest effort to talk to them about their need of salvation? I wonder how long it's been since you made an honest effort to talk to anybody about their need of salvation. And what about this? Have you ever, since you became a child of God, have you ever personally led someone to a saving knowledge of Christ? Ever. And then we assemble on Sunday. We have the singing and the preaching and the benediction and leave the building as though we don't need a revival. We need a revival a whole lot more than what we realize. There's stuff going on in this church and in every church that 99% of the people don't even know that's going on. The, the jealousy, the bitterness, the, I could go on and on and on. Stuff going on that most people don't even know about. But it's serious enough, it gives God the right to say no more blessings here because what you do as a member of the Lord's church, as a member of His body, what you do, forget this nonsense about somebody's business, what I do. When you join this church, it's a church's business. Because you're a member of the church. And what a member does has an effect upon the entire body. And if we're honest, we, I, I think every one of us would have to admit, boy, we need an old-fashioned revival. The kind of where there are 
tears, where there's laughter, where there's joy. And speaking about that, let me close with one more verse. Psalms 85 and verse 6. And the psalmist says, Will thou not revive us again? That's what it said. Revival, remember, it comes from God. We can't work it up. It's something that God does. And he says, Will thou not revive us again? But then he ends, he says, That thy people may rejoice in thee. You see, that's another consequence of true revival, and that's happiness from heaven. That we can rejoice. So many people have got this idea. If I really get serious about serving God, I'm going to be miserable because I can't do this and I can't do that because I know those things are wrong or I know those things are going to interfere with what I ought to be doing at the church. And so uh, consequently they go on living like they are and uh, they're miserable. And, 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 and you look in the Bible and he says, I'll give you joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what God wants every one of us to have. To be blunt, listen, if you don't have joy in your heart, it's because something's missing in your life. You need a revival. Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's an indication that we are in a weakened state when we don't have joy. And the only way, if you want that happiness, that joy, if, if that's what you want out of life, then you've got to have a revival. You've got to. Because we can't work it up. I can't preach it up. Willie can't sing it up. The only way it's going to come is by you getting serious with God and that starts with humility, admitting that I need God's help. I need to turn to God and give Him first place in my life. Now, if you're here today and, and someone that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, boy, I'd love to have that joy and that peace and all of those things. Listen, it's available. Christ made it available but you, you can't get it through a revival because of the fact that you're spiritually dead, just like, just like all of us. That's the way we were before we received Christ as our Savior. And today, if you would put your trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made, God would save you, not only save you from a devil's hell, not only promise you a home in heaven, but actually, literally, by His Spirit, live within you. Yes. Greater is He that is within you than he that's in the world. Amen. Wow, to imagine. Who wouldn't want to be a Christian when you consider all of the benefits of being a believer? Right. Nothing like it in all of the world. And I, I plead with you today, and you say, well, Preacher, I've got so many questions, I'm so confused. Well, you come to the right place because we've got, we've got the answer right here. And we've got folks that are willing to get on our knees with you and open the Bible and show you how you can know you're a child of God. And if you're here today and you've already been saved, but 
there's things going on in your life that may be a neglect of your responsibilities as a Christian. It may be some sin that you're entertaining in your life, whatever it is. And you know you need to act on that today. This would be a good time. How long has it been since you've seen people just kneeling all over the building? I don't care whether you pray out loud or quiet. I just want you to do business with God. Because that's the only thing that's going to make everything all right. We sing that song, Revive Us Again. I wonder how many times we sing that knowing that we're lying because that's not what we really want. Because revival is costly in one sense. But it's the most profitable thing that you'll ever do. Let's bow our heads together, Father. Lord, as much as my heart desires to see changes, not only in the church and not only in these other folks, but changes in me, in all of us, Lord, I realize that there is absolutely nothing that I can do or nothing we can do to bring these things about other than meet your conditions. That, Lord, that we'd be willing to humble ourselves and stop pretending like that there's not anything wrong with us. And that we'd be willing, Lord, to confess our sins, to get honest about where we are and admit that we haven't been seeking your face we've been seeking our pleasure God help us to turn from our wicked ways today and Lord even if every believer here isn't revived Lord may there be a number of believers that will be so revived that they'll be like the spark that ignites the fire that we'd see revival here, the kind of revival that'll reach out and touch others in our community, the kind of revival that'll make us bold to tell others about Jesus, the kind of revival that ultimately will bring others to a knowledge of Christ. God, break down our stubborn pride. Bring us to our knees, open our eyes, that we'll surrender ourselves to your will and experience all of the blessings you've promised, for we beg it in Jesus' name. Now, would you stand with us as Willie leads us in an invitation song?